Welcome to the EACCNY Pulse, a podcast platform that showcases transatlantic business insights. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce New York. Today's episode is part of our Future of Finance series, which explores tokenization of money and finance and why this is going to be a game changer in global payments. We are joined by our two friends, Dong He and Stuart McIntosh. Dong is the Deputy Director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF. And as such, he's responsible for the IMF's work on digital currency and fintech. He also leads his department's work on global financial stability, monetary and macroprudential policies, and technical assistance on central bank operations. Stewart is the executive director of the Group of 30, a financial think tank comprised of senior figures from central banking, the financial sector, and academia. Together, the two will explore the rise of tokenization in an ever more digital financial system, its impact on the wholesale and retail financial industry, and what the future may hold for the global financial system and its market participants. With that, I hand over to Stuart, who will be setting the stage for today's podcast. Enjoy. Well, hi, Dong. Nice to see you. And thank you for joining us for this discussion on tokenization, which is a very important subject of increasing interest to many people in the private sector, financial world, but also, as as you know, in the public sector, amongst our central banking colleagues and Having your perspective is going to be very helpful to us as an expert. It's it's a complex topic, but will be increasingly important for all of us as we look forward to the rapid digitization of our financial system. So I, I thought I would first of all say thanks for joining us. I know you're a busy, very busy person. It's great to see you. And maybe open it up first, along with just a, a little bit of help of definitional issues. What really is tokenization and how should we think about it? Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure to to be here. Thanks for the invitation. If we think about what is tokenization, of course, this is a reflection of the rapid progress of digital technology, uh, such as cloud computing and uh, distributed ledger technology, uh, which makes it possible for us to reorganize the way we, we organize data. Of course, the modern financial system is very much data-centered, right? Uh, but at the moment, we really see financial institutions are like data islands. Each institution is an, is, is an island of itself. It has its own proprietary database. Now, what tokenization can do, for example, on a distributed ledger technology, is really the way we organize data is going to be very different. So a token can be seen as just like a data entry in a file, okay, in a database. But the way we organize is that this is going to be connected through the network. On the network, different institutions will be able to share data so we can synchronize all the data uh, simultaneously. All the records will be updated in a synchronized manner, and there's going to be a unique state of the world of the records. Uh, so that really brings a lot of benefits in terms of transparency, reduction in market frictions, such as reconciliation of records. And it allows us to do transactions peer-to-peer. The reliance on 
a record keeper such as a financial intermediary will be uh, less than now. Now, all this, all this, of course, goes at the background, uh, but the user experience will be very different. So we can talk a bit more how, you know, what are the implications. Uh, but this really fundamentally lies behind the concepts of a digital currency. Uh, of course, you know, we started with uh, crypto assets that they were invented like uh, just over a decade ago. But of course, the technology behind it can be made use of by the public sector for public policy purposes. For example, central bank digital currency, of course, uh, we can draw inspiration from some of these innovations and uh, uh, make official currencies or central bank currencies better in the digital age for the central banks to be able to meet their uh, objectives in a more efficient way. Yes, that's a very good point. And I think it's important, important to, as you, as you did implicitly and explicitly, make the difference between sort of the, the crypto story where, where they're using similar technologies, but in an entirely unregulated uh, sort of Wild West circumstance with huge swings up and down, lots of problems for people who hold the assets. And then the digital currency space backed by central banks that is a different beast, although uses the same technological underpinnings. Uh, and, and the possibilities that that opens up, and you talked about the transparency benefits, the potential lower uh, transaction costs, and maybe also increased liquidity, right? And increased access to some people who would otherwise remain somewhat unbanked. Uh, so you've got accessibility positives there too. When you think about the central bank digital currency options, how do you categorize the different scenarios? You know that BIS has this innovation hub at the moment set up where they're looking at different scenarios and testing them. So one involves a series of central banks that would have separate CBDCs and then communicating with each other. And then another one where they have a common platform and their exchange data. And then another one where it's essentially a distributed network, uh, which is much more has it has a lot more risks involved in it. When you think about that CDT possible landscape, what, how are you seeing it develop now? Right. That's a really important question. I think this is a, an exciting period of innovation for central banks. So we can look forward to a period where central banking uh, services might be different. You know, in the decade, when we look back, I think this is a period of rapid uh, innovations. Uh, now, what is special about CBDC? At the moment, as you know, that the monetary base of um, the modern financial system is, of course, the, the liability of the central bank. Uh, that's the base money. And it has two forms, really. One is uh, cash, is the coins and notes that uh, you and I use. But that's, that's accessible to individuals. Uh, but there is also the second part that is reserves or clearing balances held by commercial banks. Uh, with our financial institutions, with the central bank, that's for wholesale clearance and settlement. Of course, the central bank money is the safest and the most liquid settlement asset of the financial system. So that really underpins of everything we do in the financial system, because ultimately we settle all the transactions using that settlement asset that is central bank money. Now, central bank digital currency uh, it's really a third form of central bank money. 
it can be designed along the spectrum of being cash-like, but also can be deposit-like. So there is a lot of flexibility. Now, if it's designed as digital cash, then what is wonderful about that is that at the moment, even though cash settlement is very efficient, if you if I buy something from you, I give you a dollar note, we settle the transaction right on the spot. That's very efficient. There's no infrastructure behind it that's required. On the other hand, it requires us to be physically present. We have to see each other. I want to hand note to you. But in the present, if you if you use digital currency, then of course we can do a very similar transaction, settle a transaction like cash, but we can be in different locations. We are connected only through the internet in the cyberspace. So that's very different from, but it has the nice properties of cash. And of course, it can also be uh, used in an offline fashion in the sense that even if you don't have access to the internet for remotely located citizens, you know, governments can send their aid money to them very efficiently. You know, previously, maybe they have to be given an envelope of cash. They have to go somewhere post offices or bank branches to collect them. Uh, there is a lot of uh, friction involved in that. But you know, now you can open a wallet on the app in the, through your mobile phone, and then you can access to government subsidies or humanitarian aid instantaneously, just like cash. But of course, the central bank digital currency can be also designed a bit more like reserves in the sense that these are for wholesale transactions. They don't have to be anonymous. By the way, if it's cash, it's designed as cash for very small wallets. It can be somewhat, you know, anonymous, right? And, uh, you know, there is quite a high degree of anonymity and privacy involved. But when it gets bigger uh, in transaction volumes, like uh, reserves, then, of course, it can be more like you know, it's uh, held by financial institutions, but it can still be much more efficient in the sense that it can be connected with other uh, financial market transactions. It's more easily connected to other CBDCs globally. So that would change the way we do cross-border payments and financial transactions in a very, uh, very different way. That's excellent. Thank you, Dong. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I, I would follow up with a, a couple of points that maybe we can talk about. One is this clear and important difference between the sort of retail CBDC and the wholesale CBDC. And one can see tensions over the retail side in, in some markets more than others. The dominant existing legacy uh, commercial banks in, in some markets, one might say America, are resistant to the idea of a retail CBDC because the very efficiency and low cost and speed of that CBDC might potentially disintermediate them, or at the very least, uh, cut their profits significantly. So you've got an you've got that issue there, and then you have, as you say, on the positive side, lots of examples where used effectively by governments, governments it can it can provide a means to get necessary funds to people very quickly and seamlessly and at low cost, wherever they are, which is fantastic and very innovative. And we see innovations in, in terms of cutting costs and cutting the red tape and so forth 
much more visible in other markets outside of America where cash is essentially disappearing, where the costs are dropping dramatically. So you, we do have tensions depending on which market we look at, which which jurisdiction we look at. Do you see this this development and developments market to market as being quite significantly different? That you've got some rushing forward, China being uppermost in my mind there, but then uh, other major jurisdictions might be said to be lagging. Does that really matter in the generation and the evolution of tokenization and digital currencies? So I, I do think uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Stuart, that we see central banks approach this very differently. That's really a reflection of country circumstances of what the current landscape of payments and uh, financial market transactions are like. Uh, you know, here in the in the U.S., of course, what you have described is a reflection that it has a very efficient payment markets already. Even though we still use checks here in the states, uh, but you know there are maybe other means um, of payments. But you know, so I think the the case for retail CBDC is uh, you know different across different countries. So it's understandable some are more interested in than others. For example, the Bahamas, one of the first to issue a CBDC, is that, of course, they very much care about financial inclusion. And probably other digital means of payments are not yet that developed. So it's very natural for them to think, can we make use of CBDC as a way to reach population that are located in, in remote islands, for example. In big markets like China and India, certainly there are um, you know, financial inclusion issues, but also a reflection of, for example, in China, there are big private payment service providers. Uh, and there, you know, we know there is a lot of economy of scale in payment economics. So private sector providers tend to become big and become dominant. So you need, you need a publicly provided instrument to ensure some interoperability and some competition in the payments market. I think, uh, for example, the um, Riggs Bank also uh, thinks along similar lines. Now, the UK is very interesting. The, U- the Bank of England and the, the, the Treasury, UK Treasury issued a consultation report and uh, there they stated very clearly that they judge a digital pound will be, will, you know, it's likely that a digital pound will be needed in the future uh, based on, you know, two considerations. One is that it's important to maintain the access by the public to a publicly provided retail uh, money. So that's the monetary foundation of uh, the monetary system in the digital age. So that's, that's, that's one important consideration. A second consideration is that they think a CBDC would be a useful platform to promote innovation and competition in the financial system. So I think these are very good, uh, thoughtful arguments. And I see similar arguments in the euro area as well. So the ECB is doing some very uh, important work exploring CBDC. Now, in some other markets, of course, maybe the central banks have been doing the background research, but they are not necessarily have a sort of a clear-cut timetable. Uh, so I do see different pace uh, of adoption, but I think if in a decade, if we look back, it's likely that the CBDC will have become a reality in, in some important markets. And that's going to affect uh, how we think about uh, the way financial markets are organized. 
and it will also affect the global landscape as well. So in the in the IMF, that's something we are thinking very carefully because we uh, our responsibility is to promote international monetary and financial stability. Uh, so how would the rise of digital money across the world affect the configuration of the international financial system? That's something we are doing quite a bit of thinking. Well, that's that's a, obviously considerable importance to all of us and maintaining the IMF's role and crucial nexus in the global financial system has to has to be sort of a focus of, of us all. But it also, your comments also remind me of what Augustin Carstens recently said in a speech on this topic in Germany, where he talked about, quite frankly, actually, about the reasoning and the needs for central banks to remain ahead, or at least in sync with what's going on technologically. And that the arguments essentially, uh, as you touched on, for CBDCs, because it's happening anyway. And the central banks need to retain control over monetary policy and, and, and the economic leaders that come with that, Hence their very negative reaction to Facebook's attempts to create their own version of currency. Uh, and they sort of stop that dead in the water. But also, hence the concern about any large platform essentially taking over that role. And let's face it, those platforms are not, a, are not headed by public officials that have to report to the parliaments and to the people and be held responsible and accountable to the people. And so there are a lot of other reasons why, when confronted by this very important dynamic, uh, that there should be continued willingness by the central banks to, to grasp it and keep control of that part of their of their responsibilities. Perhaps I might sort of continue our discussion by going back to a point you made, which was important and remains important, which is, on the one hand, you've got the small transactions that we don't need to worry about, and those can be instantaneous and should be but then you do have to have know your customer you do have to ask the right questions and ensure people are paying taxes and so on and so forth for the larger transactions even as we digitize how do we balance that of course sensible need against those perhaps a minority now who are resistant to this digitization because they say you know i don't want to be quote unquote monitored i don't want to be i don't want my transactions to be visible to others that's particularly prevalent, of course, in the United States. I recall that when Ken Rogoff uh, came out with his book on the, the end of, of hard currencies, that he was getting death threats as a result. So how do, how do we balance, I mean, balance the truth? Clearly, we need, we need to know who we're doing business with, but we also need an area where we don't need to necessarily divulge our, our specific transactions at a micro level. Yes, Stuart, these are extremely important uh, questions. I think it reflects, of course, social values of different societies as well. But what is important is that I think central banks should supply a range of uh, forms of money or instruments of payments for citizens to choose from, right? So I personally believe that cash, as it is, will survive. There will, uh, there will be an important market for them. It may become just a small part of the monetary base, but that's okay because I think it serves certain purposes. You know, people, uh, some people just like cash. I think like um, the fuel of it, and but of of course, complete anonymity, which is an important property. But I think digital currency or central bank digital currency can also be designed to mimic uh, strongly, uh, you know, the anonymity features 
you know, if the transactions are small. Now, in the digital world, we know that, the, you know, you leave a digital trail, but it doesn't have to reveal your true identity unless there is a court order, you know, uh, for financial integrity purposes. For example, Bank of England stated very clearly in its consultation report that the central bank does not want to see the data or the personal data attached to any transactions. So then you can have institutional arrangement to safeguard that kind of arrangement. But in other designs, if the wallet's limits are big or you have larger transactions, then there is the need to be able for the central banks or other authorities to be able to trace what's going on for financial integrity purposes. So I think in the digital world, you know, what's, what's, what's nice about it is that you can have a lot more choices than what we have now. Uh, and, you know, different instruments have different properties and the citizens can choose to use different instruments according to their own preferences, uh, depending on their demand for convenience and, 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 and all that, right? So that's the promise of really of digitalization. I think it's the range of possibilities are huge and it's, it's bound by our imagination. So I think we are still at the early stage, right? So looking forward, I think we can design these instruments in, in a very uh, sort of rich uh, kind of set of choices. I would agree with you. And I would say that it's perhaps the case that the degree of reluctance to adopt these new technologies may be directly related to age. So a younger generation uh, are doing this anyway. They don't carry cash. They're paying electronically like that all the time. They don't feel upset about it. It's not a terrible attack on their on their existence. And indeed, when you go to Britain or other countries outside of America, of course, no one uses physical checks at all. And the idea that that you would get a physical refund check from the government after 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 your tax day and that it'd be put in the post and sit around in the post box and potentially be stolen by anyone is incredible and amazing to most people outside of America. So I, I just say that by way of, you know, there's always a there, there's always amongst us, perhaps older people, an element of Ludditism where you say, well, oh God, this new technology is going to be terrible. But as you say correctly, Don, there's a lot of positives and, and they're already unfolding and people are adopting them and using them to to good effect without, you know, without the collapse of our system without the collapse of the of the central bank control over the system as well so this is an incredibly important topic that i know is going to run and run uh for over the next years and i'm and i feel lucky that that i can rely and i know that people like yourself don are doing the real work to make it work properly make the policy effective and also ensure that the benefits reach more people at the lowest cost at the highest degree of transparency while achieving common goals. So it's it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today, Dong. And I, I just want to uh, maybe end by asking whether there's any particular message you would want to sort of leave listeners with when they're thinking about tokenization in the next two, three years. What should they expect to see or what should they be looking for positive developments? So I think these are still early stages. Um, but as I said earlier, that I think a lot is a lot is going on. You know, stock exchanges, and financial institutions are talking about tokenization of assets. So that goes that's going beyond tokenization of money uh, or digital currencies, and, and that would affect the way we do financial market transactions. For example, back office operations will be fundamentally changed. Maybe the need for 
centralized sort of depositories of shares and the stocks, the way we probably sell houses will be very different. Now, as you imagine, closing a house is very difficult, right? You know, you have many steps involved, big chunk of money. How do we know the record or the deed is, is clean? So in the tokenized world, you can trace the origin of the, these titles and deeds. That's going to be much more efficient. So, so the way we do financial market transactions, the way we sell houses and settle them, uh, will be, that will be seamlessly connected to, uh, central bank digital currency and globally, you know, the way we trade forms change, we make payments across borders will be very different. I think the cost of remittances will be much lower for, much lower for remittance workers, for migrant workers. So that's, uh, that's going to be welfare enhancing. Remember the moment in some corridors, if you, send home a hundred dollars, you have to pay more than 10%, you know, $10, more than $10 are spent on service charges. So this is going to be hugely important for a lot of migrant workers. So I think we have something to look forward to at the moment. It's a difficult global economy. I think a lot of negative news, but, you know, in this field, I think it's quite exciting to run you know, positive things. But of course, as also you mentioned, we need a sound regulatory framework. And for example, on crypto assets, of course, the global community, including the Financial Stability Board, IMF and others, we are coming up with recommendations for um, a coordinated uh, and consistent, comprehensive policy framework for all the countries. I think hopefully those will be uh, implemented in the years ahead and then uh, you know, there will be a good regulatory framework for these privately issued digital assets. But at the official level, I think we need to think about uh, how to partner uh, with private sector to um, make good use of technology. But at the same time, we maintain the central role of publicly provided uh, money. Uh, central bank money is still the cornerstone or the foundation of the digital economy. And uh, we want to ensure the continued effectiveness of uh, monetary policy and the central banking more broadly. So I think this is, this, we have something to look forward to. I'm very, very uh, positive on that. That's great, Dong, and, and, and a really sort of positive view, particularly at this moment when, when there are many geopolitical tensions around the world and worries and feeling as if sometimes there's a lot of sand in the in the gears of globalization and finance. But here's an example where there's a lot of work being done by technical experts around the world, yourself included, to make sure that the outcomes that we see in the years ahead will be positive for all of us and not just in the developed world, but also in the developing world, and that we can continue to get benefits from this remarkable technological innovation that we see before us. So absolute pleasure to speak with you as always, Dong. And I thank you again for joining us and, and thank the EACCNY for hosting us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EACCNY Pulse. Please don't forget to rate and review this podcast episode and be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on Transatlantic Business Insights. For more information about the European American Chamber of Commerce and how to join, please reach out to membership at eaccny.com. We look forward to hearing from you.